the last number of months have been pretty tense in the United States. So I'm sharing my thoughts with you, but they're thoughts in formation. We, we thought we knew what kind of democracy we had before a violent coup on January 6th. A fraction of us figured that that, yeah, that was definitely part of the democracy we understood that we had inherited. Um, and today the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris sort of indicates that the violence we witness will be contained and the aspirations for a greater democracy will be fulfilled. So in speaking about captive maternals and abolitionist superpowers, I wanna start um, with a reflection on today and the poetry shared by youth poet laureate Amanda Gorman, who gave a beautiful presentation at the inauguration ceremony for President Biden and Vice President Harris. <clears throat> In her presentation, she made a poetic call for a unified democracy, referencing the violence at the US Capitol on January 6, 2021. And I begin with this quote from her. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it, would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be temporarily delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. That was Amanda Gorman. So Gorman during her poem described herself as quote, a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother, one who can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. So this young person, this young artist, um, young gifted in black, right? I consider her to be a captive maternal captive maternal who is also raised by a captive maternal. And I've written about the concept of the captive maternal and the womb of Western theory that was published in 2015. And it was in an anthology on the GIP, the prison information group that was organized by Michel Foucault and others around the time of black rebellion at Attica and the assassination of George Jackson in San Quentin prison, an assassination that became a catalyst in part for the Attica uprising in 1971. And of course, today is, uh, not today, this year is the 50th anniversary. So I see the captive maternal in four formations, right? The captive maternal in the first construct or the first level is the conflicted or sometimes celebratory caretaker of US democracy. So. Gorman herself as a poet, right? In her presentation of reassuring us, uh, a nation of hundreds of millions of pe people who ideologically are polarized in, in various ways. But as a captive maternal, right? She uses her art to reassure us about the solidity of democracy, about the longevity and despite its enemies, that democracy itself will prevail. And in this way, she echoes President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris and millions of people throughout the United States. So as a caretaker, she uses the art to stabilize. But in my understanding of captive maternal, sometimes that stabilization of democracy is also contradictory, right? It's destabilizing to the labor that is given to solidify democracy. 
So I'll give you an example from Attica. I mentioned um, the Attica Rebellion from 1971 in New York. And I see those who were incarcerated in the prison, it was a men's prison, but they could also would have, um, some would have self-identified as not being male, right? So for me, the captive maternal is an ungendered function and an ungendered phenomenon. That while in prison as trustees, right? They were responsible for keeping the prison going. They're the ones who cleaned the halls. They're the ones who cooked the food. They're the ones when they were ill or aging or dying incarcerated people who nursed them, who sang to them, who comforted them, who gave them love and care. So they allowed the reproduction of the prison by just caring for their community and loved ones inside of that form of captivity, right? And of course that would have existed in the antebellum era of chattel slavery, that taking care of children who are not even your biological children, but the children of other people who have been sold, right? Or the children have been sold away. And so when they come to the plantation, you will comfort them. You will be the surrogate parent. You will be the surrogate sister or big brother, right? That it's that care and love that we have for ourselves in the black community and for other communities that provides the comfort, the stability. It's, it's the nurturing that has been gendered as mothering and as female. And here I'm calling it the captive maternal. So on this level, right, it's conflicted because in a way it quells the rebellion that you are due because you seek the longevity of those within your community. And so caution, reticence, compliance, even in the face of brutality becomes the contradiction of this stage. And that was true of the men and non-men or ungendered or those who identified as female or trans in Attica. The second level would be that of the movement activists. And I'm gonna use Attica again as the template. So when the people in Attica decided that they would protest for their rights and demand that they were humans and not slaves, they literally used the language of, we are not slaves, we have to be paid decent wages, we have to be treated as human beings, right? Not as objects and not as conquest or you can, how do you say, I'm trying to find the language here, not as the byproducts of conquest and enslavement. So once they took over the prison in the protest for human rights, they were in the movement stage of the captive maternal. The third stage would be that of the maroon or maronage. Once those who were incarcerated built inside of the prison that they took over a camp, that provided food, medicine to the extent that they could deliver it, um, a waste removal system, political education, um, who would be their representation to speak to the New York Times or to the press in terms of their demand for, the hu for human rights, who would discuss with the attorneys, the civil rights advocates, who would try to negotiate with the warden of the prison or with the government itself, right? That they built a space within a space that could hold their rebellion for human rights. The last and the fourth stage would be war resistor. So President Nixon, Governor Rockefeller using the National Guard, of course they're deployed in a different way today in protecting 
um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and stabilizing democracy. And yes, conservatives would make the argument that that's what they were doing in 1971. But the National Guard treated the human rights rebellion as an act of war. And so it shot through prison guards in order to kill black, brown, and white incarcerated people who were rebelling against slavery. And in the United States, the 13th Amendment to the US Constitution legalizes slavery if you've been duly convicted of a crime. It calls it involuntary servitude, right? So those are the four stages that I want to present in terms of how I've been thinking about the captive maternal and their role, again, non-gendered phenomenon with the function of caretaking, right? That at times is contradictory in terms of the interest of rebelling against captivity, first stage, moves on to the movement stage. And that would include today, Black Lives Matter, the street movements in Ferguson in terms of activism, sees itself as having to build a maroon community to defend community, right? And preserve it. That would be this third stage. And the fourth to resist the war that the state would wage against it in order to crush desires and the material mobilization for black freedom. So when I think of the captive maternal and the superpowers of abolitionism, I think of ways in which the promissory note of democracy, which we are fully aware of has not been delivered but I think of ways in which we would have to think of power in different terms in order to attain and to stabilize and resist the retaking of the democratic rights of people who have been subjugated. So now I'm gonna move on to reading um, my reflection on this piece after having set it up using the very young gifted um, Amanda Gorman's poem, the understanding of these various ways in which black agency has manifested itself over the centuries. So I begin with ideological differences. Ideological differences and varied forms of militancy and acquiescence reveal abolitionism as a construct with diverse trajectories and aspirations. Although often discussed as a singular unified concept with the political ambition for social justice, Historically, abolitionism has existed in plurality with multiple analyses and strategies to confront captivity and the legacy of slavery within the United States. The plurality of abolitionism, let's say in the 19th century, can be seen in the diverse tactics of, an, an, tactics of antebellum leaders such as William Lloyd Garrison, John Brown <coughs> from Harper's Ferry, Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. The postbellum era that followed the Civil War ushered in convict prison leasing where blacks were worked to death in joint state and corporate ventures to rebuild the South and the 13th Amendment, which I mentioned earlier, which legalizes involuntary servitude if one has been duly convicted of a crime. And so a little to say a little bit more about convict prison lease system. After the Civil War, black people died at faster rates than we had on the plantation because before the civil war, Afri people of African descent were held as private property. After the civil war, people of African descent 
especially after the betrayal of the Reconstruction era about 1877, people of African descent were perceived as once arrested as a joint property of the local prisoner jail that could be sold to a corporation, including Northern corporations, mining, um, steel, <coughs> agricultural development, the rebuilding their version of a Marshall Plan for the South, right? would use conscripted labor from incarcerated black people. So essentially before the civil war, when you're private property, there was interest in you staying alive, right? Because you had value as a commodity that could be traded or sold. Once we became free, and that's with air quotes, you could be worked to death. And that in fact is what it happened on a regular basis. Hence historians have written texts such as if one dies, get another. So that is the 19th century. In the 20th century, in the mid 20th century, the Black Panther Party, we can think of Fred Hampton as an intellectual leader and others crafted a way in which radical abolitionism, right, could be front and center. And so this formation of the radical movements out of this legacy, right, enslavement, convict prison lease system after enslavement and the ending of Reconstruction, Jim Crow's segregation, which led to the civil rights movement in the 20th century, these constant betrayals of democracy have always been met with different forms of abolitionism. But in its plurality, they have never agreed on a political strategy or the ideological vectors to confront white supremacy in the United States. The abolitionism then that has become most dominant has been the abolitionism most favored by elites. So I would argue, or I do argue, that the influence of liberalism, right, and also the sort of romantic read of US democracy that we've ever reconciled, um, the so-called racial differences, which means that we've ever been able to quell or defeat white supremacy has meant that there's a way in which however abolitionism becomes defined, that it's, it skews towards the power and the definitions of elites. So this brings me to part two, power and protections. Black radical abolitionists have often pointed out since nonprofit and for-profit corporate funders began investing in our movements, which would include Black Lives Matter <coughs> as a form of abolitionism. Radical abolitionists have often pointed out that the most dominant form of acceptable abolitionism promotes social justice that aligns itself predominantly with the Democratic Party. Hence, the more radical abolitionists, who will not be the popular ones or most popularized to the mainstream, have argued that BLM as Black Lives Matter cannot be a synonym for Black power. In fact, Black power was the phrase of the revolutionaries, who can also be seen as abolitionists over half a century ago, right? And the Black liberation movement. So the power, attaining power, was the precondition for attaining freedom. So, and to argue that Black Lives Matter, which should be evident to everybody, um, is not a push for power, it's a push for recognition, 
So it's still a form of abolitionism, but for some, it would not be radical. It would not be seen as a rebellion, even if millions as they did of people took to the streets. The interesting thing some radical critics or critiques put on the table would be if Black Lives Matter or the initials BLM, the acronym, actually meant Black Liberation Movement. And their argument is <coughs> that the mass of Americans as liberal and law abiding and wishing everybody well and understanding that everybody's life should matter, right? That their agreement to those terms is not an agreement to a black liberation movement, even one based on pacifism, right? Nonviolent protests, right? Peaceful marches, right? Because the notion of black freedom is problematic. Whereas the notion that black people matter is not problematic. It's like, oh, you, they matter, your lives matter, but we don't care, or your lives matter, but we really don't have a lot of time for it, or like our lives matter too, you know, blue lives matter, whatever, whatever. But to have a liberation movement is a radical call for abolitionism. And that call is suppressed, not just by rightist ideologue, ideologues, it's also suppressed <coughs> by liberals. So what does it mean then, right? If we have diverse forms of abolitionism, if they have different ideological trajectories, and if our coalitions cannot permit the space and the recognition that all of these trajectories have value and are significant, not just the ones that are most favored by funders and elites. And then there has been at least by two black intellectuals, one on the continent, Africa and one in the US, who have pointed to the problems of coalitions in forming struggles for civil rights and human rights. And I'll start first with Derek Bell. So the legal scholar Derek Bell has argued that interest convergence during the civil rights movement manifested gains for black people only when the interest of blacks fighting Jim Crow and police white supremacists or Klan terror, only when their interest aligned with the interest of white elites. That means that how and when busing was resolved in Kamala Harris had that whole in the, um, in the primaries um, retort or response to Joe Biden that he was against busing, but that little girl was me, meaning that she was bust, right? Um, and granted, she was not from the working class report, so we could talk more about class later, but it was only when the interest of white elites felt that there's too, more, too much turmoil, this is starting to look bad for the United States in terms of our international rep you know, reputation as this shining city on the hill, et cetera, et cetera. It was only at the time or the point at which those in power understood that continued unrest in the South was going to have a negative impact on the US economy and on US prestige and US diplomacy in terms of being the articulator of what a democracy is and how rights should be pursued, that there 
was an alignment. And I would argue there's a possibility today that what happened with Trump is a replay of what happened, you know, half a century ago. It's that, you know, the corporations that are now saying we won't fund um, these arch conservatives or right wing conspiracy, you know, congressional reps, we're going to pull our money from here or we're going to put our money into Black Lives Matter, that their interests were peaked only when there was enough negative press and enough instability and enough threats, not to the economy of shareholders. I mean, the corporations have been making really extraordinary sums of money <coughs> during COVID and also because of the tax cuts in 2017. But it's only when they realized this was not good for a potential boycott against them for abetting white supremacists that you came into alignment. And I would argue this is also applicable to the Democratic Party. So, you know, yes, Barack Obama and others could say, don't use the language defund the police because once you do, you're too radical of an abolitionist and you're costing us votes or you're alienating the white suburbs who supposedly were gonna deliver for Biden when, you know, actually it was black voters who delivered for Biden. That this disciplinary um, mechanism in coalition is a staple to it. It's the foundation of it, according to Derek Bell. And the interest convergence will include some of the interests of oppressed people, but those interests will never manifest into policy unless they meet the interests and the needs of the elite. And I'm not trying to use the elite as a conspiracy thing, right? Like elites definitely exist in the US and you can see them because we have um, unlimited, you know, giving under Citizens United, the Supreme Court decision, right? In terms of PAC money, political action committees, you can see like the infusion of millions of dollars in winning elections. You can see where voter suppression is okay for the Democratic Party until they really need you. And then there's a get out the vote, meaning get out the black vote. And most of that organizing is done by black women and black men. We can think about Georgia, the first Jewish Senator in the South, the first black Democratic Senator. Um, in fact, they were their, both of their elections were certified on January 6th, the same day that you had the attempted coup in the Capitol. But what Amanda Gorman calls for in terms of unification or unity, as important as it is, might also be a Trojan horse of sorts. If we follow or are willing to entertain the analyses that Derek Bell provides in interest convergence. The second theorist I wanna to point to um, from the African continent is Archie Mafije, whose 1998 White Liberals and Black Nationalists, Strange Bedfellows, argues that African radicals, and that's what he means by Black nationalists, and not talking within the US context, that African rash radicals seeking sovereign rights and the eradication of neo-colonial rule confront the dilemma that, quote, white liberals are implacably but insidiously opposed to any real change in power relations. They are prepared to be ruled by somebody else or willing to be ruled by somebody else, yet they reserve the right to, quote, reign, that is, to enjoy general hegemony, <coughs> referencing then there to um, Gramsci. So Mafiche and Derek Bell write about white elite liberals. 
But since the U.S. has had um, a Black POTUS president of the United States who served two terms, Barack Obama, and now has their first Black or Black South Asian vice president, who might, in fact, if Biden only has one term, um, logically, reasonably, Kamala Harris will run. Um, she will run to succeed Biden. We can talk about black elites, right? And a, a kind of black liberalism at the elite level that presents itself, this is a phrase I know from the South from decades ago, that it's meant the desire to have black faces in high places. So quote, black faces in high places, right? That if you have black people at the seat, the highest level of power, right? In the United States, in the democracy known as the United States, the needs of a black mass will be met. I'm arguing counter to that. I am arguing that, arguing that the elites of a black mass, working class mass, laboring poor, can only be met through a radical form of abolitionism that is prohibited from entering the door of polite society, which is now more multiracial, more multicultural, despite what um, 45 with Trump and Pompeo <coughs> were trying to say about multiculturalism. I mean, the diversity of the US is a fact. Whatever reactionaries feel about putting the genie back in the bottle, whatever they're, you know, dreams about apocalypse might be, which are nightmares for other people, you can't undo, you can't undo the levels in which BIPOC, black indigenous people of color have assembled some forms of power, intellectual, political, economic within these 50 states. And with the call to make DC its own state so it can have its own police force so the next time it's stormed by white supremacists it can deploy people who are a little different from the Capitol Police who some of them were valiant but others seem to be like ushering um, rioters inside the Capitol. So black power is at play but I am arguing it is not black power for radical transformation. And so then you see the captive maternal like we deliver democracy for you. And it's a quote, I believe that's attributed to Ayanna Presley, the Congresswoman from um, Massachusetts, who's one of the quote squad with AOC, um, Imal, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, but considered to be the more liberal of them, right? But if her language or the language <coughs> attributed to her is, um, if we've delivered to you, right, this democracy, and I, we keep hearing that all like black women got won the election, you owe us, et cetera, et cetera. Then according to the Congresswoman, policy is the language of love. So the policy would be around healthcare, it would be around um, housing rights. It would, you know, all these important things that we need. But I'm arguing that that expression of love through policy and conventional politics will not trickle down to the mass base, even if some of the most dire needs, which are incredibly, if we've lost 400,000 people through, from the pandemic, people have lost jobs, disproportionately women have left um, employment in order to stay, 
stay home and take care of children and homeschool them or, or do some version of online schooling with them, right? That, that kind of love that you need for freedom comes from your community and its demands. It is not codified in policy because policy is a compromise. And so you're continuously pushing against policy in order to find what are the superpowers of radical abolitionists that could liberate captive maternals. And this brings me to the penultimate section. Abolitionism under contemporary civil war or war mongering. During his inauguration um, speech, which was very uplifting, I found it uplifting, his speech to the nation and the world today, President Biden called for the end to the United States uncivil war. Earlier this month on January 6, 2021, the world watched in real time an attempted capital coup to use the terminology of um, Congressional Progressive Caucus Congressman Jamal Bowman, who's from New York. This coup, which is an attempt to block the incoming Biden administration, highlights the schisms of a nation built upon enslavement, rape, captivity, and the desire in sectors, and again, 75 million people voted for Trump, some say for diverse reasons, um, a core um, in celebration of his white na nationalism and, and um, alliance to those tenets to spur the growth of racial capitalism. The cries of stop the steal amid the insurrection against US democracy and the certified results of the 2020 presidential election um, was an expression of voter suppression against black communities. Again, when the argument about stop the steals and where they wanted to count the votes, in Michigan, it would be Detroit, which is, you know, has a large black voting population. Um, in Georgia, it would be Atlanta, which has a large black, these urban cities, right? The, the notion of theft and dishonor or um, undermining democracy, right? Was flipped by the white supremacists and by President Trump to point as blacks as a foreign invasion into US democracy, rather than as a site in which US democracy accumulated its material wealth through extraction and forced labor. So black voters developed strategies through organizers, through the movement phase of the captive maternal, right? To deliver the presidency to Biden and the Senate to the Democratic Party. So the House, the Senate, the executive office, obviously not the judiciary. Trump probably said when he took off um, this morning that he had appointed some 300 judges, right? And he definitely appointed uh, three very conservative judges to the Supreme Court. But what U.S. democracy has been able to hold on to in terms of a being a multicultural, multiracial democracy, disproportionately relied on black labor and black votes, right? And if you recall W.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction about the Civil War 
Reconstruction and then the betrayal of the Reconstruction. Du Bois notes that some 200,000 Blacks fought in the war to attain a technical military and legal victory. And I wanna go back again to Derrick Bell and a little bit to Mafije. In 1877, it was the North and the Congress that betrayed those free Blacks by removing federal troops from the South and allowing the Ku Klux Klan and various white terrorist formations to emerge and to lynch people, to assassinate Black legislators, to assassinate whites who were attempting to work with Blacks to establish and stabilize an interracial multiracial union to, according to the historian Martha Hodes, um, the Klan would use the specter of the black rapist, but the Klan would rape white women to discipline white women who weren't necessarily in romantic or sexual relationships with blacks, but were willing to join them to construct collective economies or mutual, what we would call mutual aid today or people's banks, right? So rape, terror, racial dishonor, like you win a war to lose a war. You fight in a war, 200,000 of us, right? To be betrayed by the nation again. And I am not arguing a line of pessimism, like this could repeat itself, but I'm wondering to what extent can radical abolitionism remind us of these betrayals and curtail the possibilities of the reproduction of another form of North-South or elite corporate alliances, right? That not only render the poor and the working class disposable once you meet their basic needs, but not their political desires, but also marginalizes radicals, those radical maternals, right? Those radical captive maternals who would orchestrate a rebellion as a peaceful protest in New York City be brutalized by the NYPD and have a mayor who allowed BLM to be painted on the streets in front of Trump Tower back the police, right? So I, there's a cyclical, when I talked about the four stages, right? You nurture under captivity, knowing that you're held captive. You move into an activism to create a movement that is largely law abiding. You realize that you will need to create community defense. And so maronage, where you try to seal, shield yourself against a predatory state. And also it's rogue terrorists. And some of them are also members of the police and military or ex-members of the police and military. And the inevitability of repression coming down to break your sovereign or attempt to attain sovereign independence, like a coexistence in which you've replicated as the Panthers did through their breakfast program, through their medic program, through their self-defense program, that you replicate the care and community of a state in quotation marks for a community that has already been captured for hundreds of years and recycled through different forms of exploitation, which brings me to the last part. 
when I think of the superpowers of radical abolitionists, I'm really calling on <coughs> the language of Greta Thunberg and those beautiful young climate activists or climate warriors. I'm not, not sure how they want to be defined, but you know, my appreciation to their labor. There was a point a year or two ago when powerful men, mostly white men, right, mocked Thunberg um, for having what some people would call a disability. I believe um, Greta is on the spectrum, right? But I was fascinated by her response when she stated that both she and her cadre of global climate warriors did not see them being differently abled or having a diverse presentation of self or diverse presentation of collective as a disability. They saw it as a superpower and that it was their very ability to not compromise, which some people would say is rigidity, they're stuck, they're in a loop, they're not, they're not logical, they're not practical, they don't understand how the world works, they're not really responsible, they need caretakers, you know, blah, 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 blah. They saw what people mocked in them, which is a steely determination to present their case to save their lives and the lives of others in the future, that they defined as their superpower. It didn't have to look pretty. It wasn't gonna be polished. It wasn't gonna speak in the language of um, reconciliation until actual things had been done, right? To minimize greenhouse gases, to stop forest devastation in the Amazon, to stop the plastic accumulation in the waters, in the oceans, right? They didn't have to be palatable to the elites. They only had to be true to themselves. And if there was considered that their brains were working differently from how other people's brains worked, meaning the elite, or they needed to know how to um, not engage in language, which I guess would be parallel to the language of defund the police for the activists in New York City and other cities, they were sort of indifferent to that kind of policing and discipline, right? Because they were seeking an abolition, if this is the way I'm phrasing it, an abolitionism against climate devastation that did not have to be compatible with the conventional. And it was that desire that constituted the superpower. And I would say for the future, at least of the communities that I belong with and roll with and I learn from. So I'm re-articulating like the good parts, what the communities, black communities have taught me, although errors are just mine, um, that our vulnerability to poison water in Flint, Michigan, now supposedly redressed in part by the you know, misdemeanor charges against government officials who allowed elders and babies and adults to be poisoned in order to um, privatize sectors of the state uh, bureaucracy, that our vulnerability to dispose of 
to being disposed of, our vulnerability to dishonor, our vulnerability to be choked out by a cop with his knee on our neck, our vulnerability to be shot in our beds while we're sleeping, our vulnerability that we pass on our children every time we give them this, like the talk about being deferential and acting like a good captive maternal in the face of a police apparatus so that you be able to come home, right? Not go to prison and not go to the morgue. That ability is all shaped in trauma. And perhaps then what the captive maternal bequeaths as a superpower, whatever stage of I've named for, there's more that we're operating in for a greater democracy. So yeah, we'll just, just say that's the labor we do to quote, save democracy. Perhaps that superpower is shaped by trauma, but it's also has the steely spine of deep love. And that is the beauty, right? Of pushing for what should not be achievable and not settling for the norm, but making the aspirational not to be just your freedom dreams, but also to recognize that trailing those dreams are always nightmares about anti-Black violence. And despite whichever dreamscape we're in on any particular day or night, it is the desire to love ourselves and our communities that will always reassemble as a political force and the most radical or revolutionary form of abolitionism. Thanks. <laughs>